This is Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Um, verse 18. <clears throat> now. <laughs> pause. We're going to pause. <laughs> verse 18 begins with now. Uh, that means this is to connect today's story to the genealogy. So today's story is built upon the last story. Uh, now, after this genealogy, we're about to read the birth announcement of Jesus. In light of, if you remember, the genealogy had four women listed in it. And each of the four women had a pretty complicated life story. We had a prostitute. We had someone who had uh, gotten, pretended to be a prostitute. We had uh, just some really interesting characters in that story, which is going to clue us that Mary's story is going to be a little bit complicated, too, with that birth announcement. Uh, And understand that in a way that the the birth of Christ as Matthew went from Abraham all the way to David from David all the way to Babylon from Babylon all the way to the present time that that he has been building the case the assertion whatever the proper word is there that Jesus is the culmination the climax of the entire Old Testament everything in that big book is building to him, all the laws, all the stories, all the blood, all the sacrifice, all the judgment, all the mercy, all of it has been building to the Christ. And that's how Matthew opens the genealogy. That's how this story begins, that the promised son, the Christ has arrived. And if you remember, there were six six sets of seven listed in the genealogy, and now the seventh seven is about to begin. So the culmination of humanity is about to begin. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed, which means engaged. But I think most of you might know this, but just in case, this wasn't our version of engaged. Uh, In that culture, when you were uh, betrothed, when you were engaged to somebody, there was an exchange of a ring. There was an exchange but if you got in a big argument with your fiance, you wouldn't throw the ring and go, I'm walking away from this. <laughs> you, you had to get divorced in this culture. You had to, you, you had to, it was a legal proceeding to get divorced from your fiance. So that's what he's going to do. Um, verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, that's a nice way of saying before they slept together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, And Matthew, interestingly, doesn't give us that story, but the gospel account of Luke does. Uh, So if you're interested in that, you got homework. Uh, Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, we got to pause. I got a bone to pick here. (laughs) Isn't Joseph often portrayed in the pulpits in a really bad way? I mean, he is typically talked about horribly. But notice how Matthew introduces him. He calls him a just man. And and this is called the law of first mention. Whenever a word is used for the first time or whenever someone's introduced, that is to frame our thinking biblically on how to filter their story. For the example, um, 
and the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob was introduced as a Tam man. In the Hebrew, in the English, it always reads quiet, but in the Hebrew, it literally means perfect. He was the perfect son, which then tells us when his mother has him steal the birthright, that really put a really good kid in a really bad place. It it makes us filter the story through the way they were introduced. Well, Joseph's been introduced to us as a really just man. He was a fair, a just, a reasonable man. And so moving into the text, we have to keep in mind, and maybe there's some unlearning to do here, Joseph has been introduced to us as a good guy, as a just man. Now, Joseph the Just is a nickname some a lot of Christians in the East call him. Uh, Joseph the Just, finding out about Mary, sought to quietly divorce her. Now, the reason he does it this way is because he doesn't want Mary to be killed. Now, you think, why would Mary be killed? Deuteronomy 22.22 says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lays with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. And this was, this was, this was all about societal order, because let me tell you, if the family unit breaks down, the country breaks down. So this was to, this was like I can't sleep with you. I don't want to die. This was to make the most severe punishment possible to keep society intact, because young people will be foolish if you give them wiggle room. Verse twenty three: If there is uh, sorry, Deuteronomy twenty three: uh, If there is a betrothed virgin, so here's Mary, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to, to this gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. So cheating on your spouse was a crime punishable by death. Mary could have been stoned to death. Under the Romans, a lot of these Old Testament laws weren't always enforced to the extent of the Torah lays out. But certainly in a Jewish context, very minimally, she would have been the black sheep of the entire community. She would have, this would have carried with her for the rest of her life. And so Joseph, though he thinks Mary's lying to him, because obviously he's divorcing her, uh, he also doesn't want to see her killed or mistreated. Again, this tells us a lot about this man. Uh, he, he feels deeply wronged, yet he has great compassion on Mary. Now, I was thinking about this. And it almost seems like there's a contradiction because if Joseph was a just man, isn't it interesting he doesn't seek justice? Isn't that kind of strange? Joseph was a just man, he didn't seek justice. What is happening here? And I think the answer is deeply profound. Um, Joseph, I believe, since I think he's a forgotten hero of the Bible, uh, I think he understood the spirit of the law. See, in the Old Testament, what do we see? We see an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. If Joseph said, homegirl cheated on me, you know, and they, if people started throwing stones, then, then I, don't, I don't think he would have been wrong for that. But deeper than eye for an eye, Jesus told us was what? Turn the other cheek. Think of what Jesus says in Matthew 5.38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, and that seems to imply enslavement of some sort, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Joseph, in some ways, 
is living out the Sermon on the Mount before the Sermon on the Mount even comes. He's getting to the heart of the law. Do you see this? He's getting to the heart of the law. And it's not that Joseph would have been wrong to make a big stink out of what Mary's he thought Mary was doing, but Joseph was a man acquainted with justice, but he understood the spirit of justice. He, he sought mercy and grace over vengeance. And so this is a man who we know truly seeks to be godly in the deepest sense of, of the way. And so Matthew is showing us that Joseph was a godly man. Jesus comes from good stock, <laughs> is what we're being shown. Verse 20, But as he considered these things, Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, pause. One of the things we want to understand about Jesus, again, is that the entire Old Testament was building to him. And this is how Matthew opens his genealogy, right? The son of Abraham, the son of David. Well, for example, in the gospel... Um, Jesus is portrayed, is revealed as a type of David at times. He's portrayed as a type of Abraham at times. He's portrayed as a type of Solomon sometimes as he gives prophetic literature to, to crowds. And if we study these Old Testament stories, we can see that in, in many ways that these guys also prefigure Christ. But one of the things that's really important to me is that Jesus is more than a type for these men. Jesus is the greater type. So what I mean is David killed Goliath. And if you read the story of David and Goliath, it says Goliath was covered in bronze. He was covered in scales, chain link, just like scales. Well, <laughs> remember he chopped off Goliath's head? Well, who? Jesus is the greater David. He killed the serpent of serpents and crushed the head of the snake, as it says in Genesis chapter 3. In many ways, Jesus is the greater David. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Solomon. And remember, Moses won up the mount, Mount Sinai, and got the law from God. Well, Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, he ascends the mountain and is God and gives the people the law. Again, Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the greater David. He's the greater Solomon. He's the culmination of all of their stories within himself. Point being, here in verse 20, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him that God was making this child. Now we want to pause and think, is this building off of anything in the Old Testament? And of course it is. This is the story of Adam. As the father reached down, remember, remember in Genesis 1 and 2, it says the father reached into the soil and brought about a man. Well, all throughout scripture, a woman's womb was, was a picture of fruit bearing, of garden imagery, of exactly what Eden is described. And well, here now God reaches down into this virgin's womb uh, and brings about new life. And so in a sense, Jesus is a new Adam, which makes sense because if you know the story of Jesus, what does he call himself? I am the son of man. In Hebrew, that means the son of Adam. So he's a new Adam. He's a new Adam. This is a new, a fresh start for humanity's beginning in this second person God is making out of good earth, in a sense. Uh, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Another pause. It's so hard to do these in a condensed frame, if I'm being honest. Um, 
The child's name is to be Jesus. Jesus here is the Hebrew word for Joshua. So, great name. Uh, <laughs> now, when you read the Old Testament, there are two big Joshuas in the Old Testament. There's Joshua from the book of Joshua, from which I'm named. And then there's Joshua the high priest from the book of Zechariah. Now, the angel... Instead of letting Joseph and Mary try to figure out what Joshua, what Joshua he's going to act like, is he going to be more like the Joshua from Joshua or the Joshua from Zechariah? This angel explains that this Joshua is a new thing. So, and, and one of the things that I absolutely love about the Bible is something that drives most people crazy. <laughs> I love that the Bible doesn't answer every question we have. It doesn't answer every single ounce of speculation we have. Because people, I mean, in my world, people go crazy and club each other to death over every single little detail that there's a question mark next to. So God doesn't answer every question we have. But, what, but at the same time, and what I love is he absolutely does answer every question that needs to be answered. There's nothing left unexplained that needs to be explained. We have a complete scripture, right? Well, there are times in our Bible where God allows some question marks, and there are times in our Bible where God wants us absolutely clear on what is being said to the point where God does not allow any human interpretation to be off. And here is one of the places in the Bible where we as believers, we need to be crystal clear on what's happening. And that is that this Jesus is coming to save people from their sins. The angel tells the parents right away what this child is going to be all about. He is saving people from their sins. The messenger from God, the angel, doesn't want anyone to be mistaken who reads this account as to why God is bringing about a new Adam. And this Adam, this Joshua, is going to reverse the curse. Uh, and if you want to think back, okay, this is a new Adam. What did the first Adam do? He plunged humanity into sin. <laughs> What's the second Adam going to do? Save humanity from sin. The first Adam kicked us out of the garden. The second Adam brings us back into the garden. The first Adam failed with the serpent. The second Adam succeeded in crushing the serpent. So again, there's all these themes here. This child has come to set humanity right. Uh, verse 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I love that verse so much. Now, the only direct Old Testament quotation in Matthew's birth announcement is this. This is the only Old Testament verse directly pointed out, and it comes from Isaiah 7, 14. And it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. One of the reasons why this Old Testament quotation is so fascinating, has anyone ever heard that term, I can do all things through Christ with a verse taken out of context? <laughs> Has anyone ever heard that term before? You know, people, you ever know people that can take a Bible verse and make it apply to anything they want it to? They weren't written that way, you know. Um, 
no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Ray Lewis said that before the Super Bowl. It's like, that has nothing to do. <laughs> this is not about you winning a football game, Ray. Um, well, Isaiah 7, 14 has a context uh, that's very informative. And one of the reasons why this Old Testament quotation is so fascinating, again, is because of the context of Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, God sent Isaiah to King Ahaz because there was a looming threat of national disaster. An army was being raised up to crush Judah. And so God sent Isaiah, go tell Ahaz, you're good. They won't conquer you. I'm going to deal with those kings. Don't worry about it. Judah's going to survive. Then God tells Isaiah, okay, now I want you to tell King Ahaz to ask for a sign. And that way, when I fulfill the sign, he knows he can trust absolutely in the word of the Lord. And King Ahaz does something so stupid. <laughs> he pretends he doesn't need a sign. He pretends he's not worried. Oh, no, I'm, I'm a deep Christian. I believe you, God. Uh, Isaiah 7, 14 says, But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz was being fraudulently pious. He was being fake, a phony, pretending to be a strong believer. So Ahaz pulls this little fake pious stunt, and God gets real mad. <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, he... Um, and then God goes on to tell Ahaz that there will be a son, that he gives the sign anyways, because, you know, Ahaz, I'm, I'm God, I'm going to do what I want. He gives the sign, and then there's another, a new prophecy because of Ahaz's foolishness, and he goes, well, now there's going to be a greater enemy that rises up against you, the Assyrians, and you're in a whole lot of trouble, and Judah's going to be destroyed. Now, the quotation here in Matthew is so powerful because it serves as a confirmation for two different outcomes for this child, because Jesus is now the sign. On one hand, the child born of a virgin is a sign of deliverance, right? He comes to forgive sins. On the other side of the coin, there are the Ahazes of the world, like the Pharisees, who are fake and phony in their piety. They tithe, mint, and cumin, and they got to give a tenth of their pepper to the temple, yet they burden people and, and neglect widows and orphans. They're just like King Ahaz. They're falsely pious. It's fake religiosity, which is the most disgusting thing ever. And, and for those people, what, what does the sign mean to them? Destruction. So in a very real sense, the coming of Jesus is a confirmation of two outcomes. Either you're going to be destroyed or you're going to be absolutely forgiven of your sins. And it all comes with how do you accept the sign of the coming of God. So Jesus is both good and bad news to some people, uh, which, again, I think fits really well in line with Simeon's prophecy in, in Luke chapter 2, I believe this. Um, verse 24. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. Awesome. <laughs> Pause. Joseph's name is not a mistake. One of the reasons I have such a bone to pick about the mistreatment of Joseph's story, because, you know, people say, have you heard anyone pick on him that he didn't believe Mary? Has anyone ever heard that? Is it just me? Uh, pastors pick on him for not believing Mary, but it's like, if you were Joseph, you'd think the same thing. Yeah, the Holy Spirit got you pregnant, sure. You know, sounds convenient. Uh, it sounds ridiculous. 
and then and then there's the story where he can't find a place for his child to stay in Jerusalem. Remember, and he's look he looks like a bumbling idiot. And then and then you know every every Christmas show ever they show nine month pregnant Mary on the back of a donkey sloshing around, going oh you know she's about to pop. What husband puts his nine month pregnant wife on a donkey? A bumbling idiot. That's not what happened according to the Bible. That's that's that comes from a Gnostic gospel called the um, the, the Gospel according to Saint James, which was written like three hundred years after the gospel, and someone wrote it to sell manuscripts. Uh, that has nothing to do with anything biblically. So one of the reasons I have such a problem with this mischaracterization, mischaracterization of Joseph, besides the truth that it's all false, uh, it's not factual, is that it it makes us miss the obvious connections that Matthew was trying to show us. That the Joseph in Matthew, if we start with he's a bumbling idiot, we miss the connections we should be making. But if we read of Joseph the way Matthew frames him, that he is a godly, a righteous, a just man, then we realize he's just like the Joseph from the book of Genesis. And Matthew wants us to make these connections. For example, both men are considered righteous. The Matthew from, or the the Joseph from the book of Genesis and Joseph from uh, the father of Jesus. Both of these Josephs are dreamers. Isn't that interesting? Remember Joseph is introduced to us as a dreamer? Well, here's this Joseph getting messages from the Lord in the form of dreams. So he's a dreamer. Both of these Josephs act on their dreams. As we will read, both Josephs travel and settle in Egypt to ultimately save their families. Uh, and the most important connection, what was the big thing that Joseph did? He, he saved wheat and bread for the nations. Remember, he knew a famine was going to come, and he built up these storehouses in Egypt for the nation, bread for the nations. Well, Joseph's going to end up doing the same thing. He's going to bring Jesus, who's called what? All through the scriptures, the bread of life, into Egypt, and so it will be there to feed the nations. Again, these men are intimately connected in their stories, but we miss it if he's a bumbling idiot. <laughs> but if we read it like it's meant to be laid out, we can see God had his man, hand all over this man. Uh, and we really we really shouldn't, shouldn't miss this, that, that he is a godly husband. He's a godly father. He's a capable man, just like Joseph from the story of Genesis. Um, and, and we don't want to miss these themes as we Continue on in this book. Uh, verse 25. You see me sweating? Yeah, I see. Oh, man, it's, it's, eat. well, I just ate dinner. I'm, it's a whole thing. I ate so much steak. Oh, man. Cal shudder in horror as I drive by. Verse 25. I hear you mooing, I ate a pound of ground beef for lunch. And then I ate a steak for dinner. Oh my gosh. But my, all my inflammation's gone, so I don't know. Call me crazy. Uh, verse 25. Uh, everything they tell me not to do, I end up doing, and I feel better. I don't know. Uh, watch me. I'll die of a heart attack. That'll be thing. Uh, verse 25. But knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We're done our reading. So Joseph, like Mary is willing to accept the plans of God no matter what it will cost him. And again, 
I really, you notice I feel like I got to stick up for Joseph because he's been so bullied over the last 2,000 years. Uh, everyone points out how much it's going to sacrifice Mary, right? To have this child, she's going to be the outcast. People are going to make fun of her. People are going to call her names. And that's true when we should highlight that, and that's accurate. But we also don't want to miss that the same is true with Joseph. If he's choosing to raise this child, everyone's going to assume that's his kid, <laughs> which means he's also going to be ostracized. He's also going to be mistreated. He's also going to be hated. He's also putting you know, his trade, his reputation on the line. And so again, what we're seeing is that this is a good man who's willing to do the right thing, even if it costs him a whole lot, uh, which I think is a large part of the definition of what a godly man is, but that's for another time. Also, uh, before we get into our application, today's text says that he did not know his wife until she had given birth to a son. Um, there it is, plain as day. Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin. <laughs> it basically says he didn't sleep with her until Jesus came. So there, there were, and then we know that Jesus had brothers. He had he had a family. So it seems that they then continued their family after Jesus was born. And it's plain as day there in Matthew one. Uh, so that's our text. Uh, I have two thoughts about the virgin birth, and I had a lot of fun doing this. I'm going to be honest. Uh, first, the virgin birth. Yeah, have you ever thought, what's that about? Anyone ever thought about that? Uh, well, the virgin birth is so foundational to Christianity that it, a lot of people don't know this. But in the first few centuries, in order to even be allowed into the church to be considered a Christian, you had to confess that Jesus was born of a virgin. You weren't allowed to take communion until you said this. And in fact, when you look at the earliest uh, Christian creeds, like I have a, I have a, a doctrinal or a, a, a study through the, the, the Nicene Creed. And, and what you see when you get to the virgin birth section is that this was foundational down to the very roots of what it means to be a Christian. And you almost don't hear anyone talk about it anymore. But this was, this was deeply ingrained in who Jesus was in the first few centuries. Uh, and, and one of the things that the virgin birth tells us, and, and most clearly, is that salvation cannot come from mankind. <laughs> That's one of the very, very clear proofs of what the virgin birth is. Salvation cannot come from mankind. If it could, he would just have let some good family had some good kid and do the deal. So if we're going to understand anything about the virgin birth, especially in light of the, of the genealogy of verses 1 through 17, is that salvation does not, it cannot come from inside of mankind. We tried for a few thousand years, it didn't work out. <laughs> the book of Jeremiah tells us that the heart of man is deceitful above all things, uh, meaning there's nothing more toxic in the world than the human heart. If there's a way to ruin something, we'll figure it out. <laughs> we messed up paradise for a piece of fruit. I, I can't, I love food, but come on. And, and, and after thousands of years of humanity, the, the Old Testament reveals so plainly that if mankind was going to save itself, we would have done it. It, it had to come from outside of us. And this salvation, this, this help, 
is coming now, Matthew reveals, as he runs through the entire Old Testament. It's finally coming to a babe born to a virgin, that God is going to regrow a new Adam. Let's start again, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> Uh, Jesus Christ is the solution to man's helplessness and hopelessness. I love Ephesians 2, 8. For by, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You know, I think we can miss a lot that Jesus is a gift. You know, mankind, us, we, we don't deserve him. There's a lot of entitled people, aren't there? Like, if there's a heaven, I'll get in. I donate the pita. It's like, oh, it doesn't work that way. I volunteer at a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. Well, that's great. Doesn't mean you're shoe into heaven. You don't deserve Jesus. And Jesus is not earned. He's received. And this child, the Christ, he, he is our gift. This is the gift of God to mankind. Now, the second thing, and our last thing, if humanity can only be safe from outside of humanity, God himself, then as wonderful as the incarnation and the virgin birth is that God so loved the world, he sent his son. Like there's so many sweet messages in the virgin birth. Isn't it also a declaration of our evil? We can't save ourselves. Why not? We're a little damaged. <laughs> Some days, I mean, just a little bit this group, but everyone else is messed up. <laughs> You know, you notice you wake up some days, you feel great, and the next days it's like, I'm going to kill somebody. It's just, it's just what's in us. And, and, and the truth is, the truth is, if God gave mankind a million years to figure it out, it wouldn't happen. We would never reconcile ourselves to God. We wouldn't make one, we wouldn't make one perfect one of us. It wouldn't happen. And if he gave us 10 million years, we still wouldn't make one person, let alone a perfect society, which people think we're going to get now anyways. It's crazy. So the incarnation, the virgin birth of Jesus declares not only that we were absolutely doomed without God's intervention, which if you don't know what that means, it means without Jesus, we die. We're all going to die. It's going to happen. And we're going to stand before God one day. And without Christ, do you know what every single person has to do? They have to stand there and give an account for every single cruddy thing they've ever done. Now, I don't know about you, but my list is getting pretty longer the older I get. I snap at my kids because I'm frustrated, or I just have, it's like, Josh, you idiot, <laughs> don't do that. You know, but you stand before God and you'd stand on your own righteousness and here you would be, imperfect, standing before perfection, God Almighty, and you'd be doomed. You'd be absolutely doomed without excuse. He'd press play on the worst things you'd ever done and go, okay, how, how did you atone for that? And you would just go, I didn't. Okay, off you go. We would be doomed. So not only does the incarnation declare that we're doomed without God's intervention, it also tells us that everything mankind produces... All that we touch, in a sense, we stain. That's that story. Remember, remember David tries to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem on the ox cart? And the, and the, and the Ark hits a, or the, the ox cart hits a bump, and the, and the Ark of the Covenant, like, you can't drop that. And that starts to fall, and the guy tries to stable it with his hands, and he drops dead. 
And David's all upset. He's, he's stomping around. He's angry. But David had the audacity to think that the man's hands were cleaner than the dirt. And the, the man was filled with sin. That's God's earth. Again, we, 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 misunder, we, 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 we underestimate our own evil. <laughs> and ultimately, everything we touch is stained with sin and corruption. As Paul says in Romans 3.10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. So we're, none of us are off the hook. Now, here's what I think we should leave with. Today's story is a reminder, I believe, that there are 194-ish countries in this world on planet Earth. But according to the Bible, there are only two kingdoms. It's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And when the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, when Jesus came, it, it says almost immediately he began preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus brought with him a new kingdom, a different way, a, a, a kingdom. It's one of the reasons why in, in, in Matthew chapter, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, why are you worried? Be anxious for nothing. Because in, in the kingdom of darkness, we have a lot to be worried about and anxious, don't we? <laughs> like, there's a lot of bad. But in God's sovereign kingdom, we don't need to worry. He brought a kingdom that we didn't need to worry about. He managed. We didn't manage. He managed it. And so God brings in a, a Jesus. This child comes with a new kingdom. He comes with a better kingdom, a kingdom not of corruption, but a kingdom of life. And for those of us that choose Christ and his kingdom, and I mean really choose, not just like some, I get stirred up when I listen to those Jesus songs and, and then I leave and I'm no different, but, you know, your life actually changes. You know, Jesus talks about this with Nicodemus in John 3, you're born again. You know what it means to be born again? It means you died and you were born again. You are something totally other than, but Jesus says that those that are born again enter into this new kingdom and we're going to abide in this new kingdom forever, forever free from this kingdom of darkness. And so as believers, and this is what I'm long way to get to what I'm getting to, is for those of us that really believe this sign, we can enter into the confessions of our early brothers and sisters all the way back at Nicaea 300 something, that this sign that's given is the son of God. And he will grow up in all wisdom and stature, as we'll read. And he does live a perfect life. And he isn't like one of us. He's something other than. And then he died a perfect death. And then he ascended on the third day. And then he arose uh, in his ascension before the Father. And he is going to return and grab his people and get us the heck out of here. For those of us that believe that, right? Like... <laughs> then this child, if we can believe it, is a confirmation of the promises of God. We will be saved. This is what that Isaiah 7 connection's all about. But if we would, mm, <laughs> if we would be falsely pious and maybe not actually believe it, or you ever find yourself trying to manipulate God? <laughs> trying to co-work something or, 
you know, you, you put on the robe and you act like you're a Christian and then you get home, you take it off and you're just as much a child of hell as anyone else. We can reject the sign. And with that comes destruction, which is why Jesus, when it says he comes back, he gathers his elect and he judges evil. And what a terrifying and awesome day of the Lord it's called. It, it will be. And so if we would accept the son, we will be delivered and saved. And if we deny him, we are in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> but this child, for those who do accept, he wipes away, he forgives our sins through and through. And that the angel wants us perfectly clear on this. That is who this child that is coming is. This is what he's coming to do. He's not coming to clean up 99% of your sin and you're responsible for 1%. Like you better get some good works in there and then maybe you're saved. No, he's coming to forgive all of our sins, which is a truly awesome, powerful thing. Anyone have anything they want to add? It doesn't have to just be me. We can reject the sign. And with that comes destruction, which is why Jesus, when it says he comes back, he gathers his elect and he judges evil. And what a terrifying and awesome day of the Lord it's called. It, it will be. And so if we would accept the son, we will be delivered and saved. And if we deny him, we are in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> but this child, for those who do accept, he wipes away, he forgives our sins through and through. And that the angel wants us perfectly clear on this. That is who this child that is coming is. This is what he's coming to do. He's not coming to clean up 99% of your sin and you're responsible for 1%. Like you better get some good works in there and then maybe you're saved. No, he's coming to forgive all of our sins, which is a truly awesome, powerful thing. Thanks for joining us for Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, head to calvarychapelbaltimore.org for service times and directions. If you have a prayer request or you've just been blessed by today's teaching and want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. To donate to the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Pastor Josh and all of us at Calvary Baltimore consider it a blessing to serve you. We hope you'll join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Harford County Bible Study Podcast.